This is The Celluloid Ceiling, a podcast about women in film, starting from the early days of Hollywood all the way up to modern cinema. Take a journey with me, your host, Becca, as I explore all the different facets of filmmaking and all the amazing women making these films. Hello and welcome back to The Celluloid Ceiling, a podcast about women in film. Uh, It's me, your host, Becca. And hopefully, um, I can get this released within the year 2020. If not, uh, happy new year, I guess. <laughs> I've been kind of slow to do things. Just, just, it'd it be quarantine, baby. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's just what I keep telling myself. So, today's episode is going to be a little bit different because I'm sort of backtracking and doing a little bit of like a best of sort of thing because I... Uh, When I started this podcast, I wanted to shed light on women who you didn't know, and that generally means women of color, and I've probably not been doing enough to include them in previous episodes. And I know I bring up the lack of diversity in most, if not all, of these episodes, but then I do not do my part and try and find these women of color, specifically black women and Hispanic women, Asian women. Granted, there is not a lot written about some of these women to begin with, let alone any women of color which makes it so much more difficult than it should be. Uh, and it's a little embarrassing. It almost feels like we're erasing this part of our culture. And the good thing is that this is a good amount of people. There's a good amount of women on this list, which means that there can only be more going forward, right? And there's a lot of people out there, especially organizations and um People like the Film Fatales who are doing a lot of really great work making sure that uh, diversity is a big part of the film industry from here on out because it is not just in front of the camera but also behind the camera. So today we're going to be focusing on black filmmakers and there's going to be a great mix from directors, writers, XYZ and a great mix of what years they come from and things like that. So let's start off with Cassie Lemons. Lemons was born in St. Louis, Missouri and she went to Commonwealth School, a small private high school in Boston, Massachusetts. In the summer, she attended the Circle in the Square program, a program where kids who wanted to be professional actors trained, and which was part of New York University's School of Drama. This gave her access to many professional actor studios such as Lee Strasberg and Stella Adler. Lemon started her film career as an actress, and her passion for movies came at an early age, but it was her goal to become a director, and as she states, I wanted to do something more meaningful than going to auditions. As well as attending New York University's Tisch School of the Arts program, UCLA, and the New School for Social Research Film program, Lemons was awarded an honorary degree, Doctor of Humane Letters from Salem State College in 1998. Currently, she is an Associate Arts Professor at New York University's Tisch School of the Arts. So her acting credits include episodic parts in shows like As the World Turns, Murder, She Wrote, The Cosby Show, and ER, and she's been in films such as Spike Lee's School Days, The Vampire's Kiss, and the Academy Award winner for Best Picture, Silence of the Lambs, Candyman, Hard Target, Fear of a Black Hat, Gridlocked, Until There Was You. In 1997, Lemons directed the film Eve's Bayou, starring Samuel L. Jackson, Lynn Whitfield, Debbie Morgan, Diane Carroll, and Journey Smollett. Lemons had begun to write the screenplay for Eve's Bayou in 1992, and this was the first screenplay she'd ever written herself. And to convince studios that she could direct Eve's Bayou, she filmed Dr. Hugo, a short film based on a section of the script in Eve's Bayou. 
And the film was actually really well received among critics, holding an 80% approval rate on Rotten Tomatoes, and won Lemon's the Independent Spirit Award for Best First Feature, as well as the National Board of Review Award for Outstanding Directorial Debut. And it was the highest grossing independent film in 1997. In 2001, she directed Jackson again in The Caveman's Valentine, about a schizophrenic homeless man trying to solve a murder mystery. In 2002, Lemons conceived and helmed the tribute to Sidney Poitier for the 74th Annual Academy Awards show. Shortly afterwards, it was announced that Lemons would direct The Battle of Cloverfield, a supernatural thriller from her own script for Columbia Pictures. In 2007, she directed Talk to Me, that was centered around the television personality and activist Ralph Waldo Petey Green Jr. that was played by Don Cheadle. For the film Talk to Me, Lemons received the NAACP Image Awards for Outstanding Director in a Motion Picture and was named as the Best Director by the African American Film Critics Association. Lemons adapted the Broadway musical Black Nativity and filmed it in 2013. It starred Academy Award winners Forrest Whitaker and Jennifer Hudson, as well as Academy Award nominee Angela Bassett. Lemon's 2019 film Harriet is a biographical film about Harriet Tubman and premiered at Toronto International Film Festival. Its star Cynthia Ivero was nominated for an Academy Award. More recently she directed the Madame C.J. Walker limited series for Netflix. Up next we have Madame Tussaud Welcome. Yes that's her name. That's a great name. Born Jenny Louise Van Der Zee she was an African-American visual artist associated with the Harlem Renaissance. Vanderzee, who was referred to herself as the foremost female artist of the race. Vanderzee was born in Lenox, Massachusetts to John Vanderzee and Susan Brister. And before moving to Lenox, Massachusetts, her parents were a maid and a butler in New York to President Ulysses S. Grant. Jenny attended Lenox High School and took private lessons in art and music in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Early in the 20th century, she moved to New York with her father and brothers. And another one of her brother, or one of her brothers, James Vandersee, actually became a famous photographer. She married Ernest Toussaint Welcome, an inventor and entrepreneur, on January 10th, 1910, and they moved into a brownstone in New York City. As just a reminder to everyone, New York was a really big film place uh, at the time, because it wasn't until a little bit later that they moved to Hollywood. The, sorry, the, the film industry moved to Hollywood. So they established a Toussaint Conservatory of Music and Art, and the first ad for the conservatory appeared in the first issue of the NAACP's journal, The Crisis. Vendersee stood out during her time because she was an African-American and an owner of a business in Harlem. She and her husband were also known as the husband and wife team of their time. Working closely together, they established their own art school, photographic studio, and film organization. They produced films and paintings that recognized the African-American soldiers of World War I. The film, a 12-part documentary, was titled Doing Their Bit. Between 1917 and 1918, the Toussaint Pictorial Company published a pictorial history of the Negro and the Great War, a memorial book that featured Jenny's work. It also included pictures from the governmental sources and a few uncredited photos. Next, we have Tressie Suders. Teresa Ann Suters was born in Frankfort, Kansas, the only child of Robert Suters and Lavinia Ann Bryant, African-American natives of Kentucky who immigrated to Kansas, most likely as a result of the mass migration of African-Americans from the South to the American West due to the Exoduster movement, also probably racism. Tressie grew up in Frankfort and graduated from Frankfort High School in 1918. 
After graduating, she journeyed to Kansas City, Missouri, where she was employed as a maid in private homes, a job she would perform for most of her working life. So it's not really known how Tressie got into the filmmaking business, although it is known that she did perform in an amateur theatrical production of a morality play entitled Every Negro, written by the Reverend A. Lawrence Kimbrough of the Holsey Chapel Christian Methodist Episcopal Church of Frankfurt in 1918. Sometime between 1923 and 1926, Tressie moved to Los Angeles, possibly intending to get into the motion picture business. However, she appears in surviving public records as a domestic worker. The Tressie Soldiers Film Society grew from the International Black Women's Film Festival, founded in 2001 in San Francisco. In 2008, the IBWFF established the Tressie Soldiers Awards, or Tressies, now known as the Black Laurel Awards. Just some fun stuff about Kansas. A Kansas City physician, A. Porter Davis, produced and starred in Allure of a Woman, which was produced in 1921, while local newspaper editor, author, lecturer, and social activist Maria P. Williams produced, directed, and starred in a 1923 melodrama, The Flames of Wrath. Both productions were locally made, produced, and enlisted local talent where she was, which is maybe how she got interested. In January 1922, the Afro-American Film Exhibitors Company of Kansas City, Missouri, with offices in Baltimore, Maryland, and Dallas, Texas, contracted with soldiers to distribute her film, A Woman's Error. Billboard magazine for January 28, 1922, published the company's announcement that A Woman's Error was the first of its kind to be produced by a young woman of our race and has been passed on by the critics as a picture true to Negro life. To date, no prints have ever been located, which is really, really sad. So she kind of became a little bit of a producer, and it's, once again, we don't get a whole lot on these, um, some of these people, and it's just just very unfortunate. And she happens to be one of them, because she sounds like she had a really interesting journey to, to film. Up next, we have Zora Neale Hurston. Hurston was the fifth of eight children of John Hurston and Lucy Ann Hurston, and she was born in Notasolga, Alabama on January 7th, 1891, where her father grew up and her parental grandfather was the preacher of a Baptist church. When she was three, the family moved to Eatonville, Florida. It was one of the first all-black towns incorporated in the United States. Hurston said that Eatonville was home to her as she was so young when she moved there. Sometimes she claimed it as her birthplace. A few years later, her father was elected as mayor of the town in 1897, and in 1902, he was called to serve as minister of its largest church, Macedonia Missionary Baptist. As an adult, Hurston often used Eatonville as a setting in her stories, and it was a place where African Americans could live as they desired, independent of white society. In 1901, some northern school teachers had visited Eatonville and given Hurston a number of books that opened her mind to literature. She later described this personal literary awakening as a kind of birth. Hurston lived for the rest of her childhood in Eatonville and described the experience of growing up there in her 1928 essay, How It Feels to Be Colored Me. In 1917, she resumed her formal education attending Morgan College, the high school division of Morgan State University, a historically black college in Baltimore, Maryland. At this time, apparently to qualify for free high school education, a 26-year-old Hurston began claiming 1901 as her birth year. She graduated from the high school of Morgan State University in 1918. In 1918, Hurston began her studies at Howard University, a historically black college in Washington, D.C. 
She was one of the earliest initiates of Zeta Phi Beta, a sorority founded by and for black women and co-founded the Hilltop, the university's student newspaper. Hurston left Howard in 1924 and in 1925 was offered a scholarship by Bernard Trustee Annie Nathan Meyer to Bernard College of Columbia University, a woman's college where she was the sole black student. While she was at Barnard, she concluded ethnographic research with noted anthropologist Franz Boas of Columbia University and later studied with him as a graduate student. She also worked with Ruth Benedict and fellow anthropology student Margaret Mead. Hurston received her BA in anthropology in 1928 when she was 37. In 1935 and 1936, Zora shot documentary footage as a part of her fieldwork in Florida and Haiti. Included is rare ethnographic evidence of hoodoo and voodoo religion in the U.S. and Haiti. Zora could be, according to an essay by Gloria Gibson, the first African-American filmmaker. The film footage, which includes Children's Games in 1928, Logging 1928, and Baptism 1929, appears to be from her work as a student of anthropology under the tutelage of frame anthropologist, professor, and mentor Dr. Franz Boas. A graduate of Barnard College and a Guggenheim Fellow, Hurston traveled back to a town south, similar to her hometown of Eatonville, Florida, to capture a variety of short takes of African-American life. Ethnographic in nature, the films reflect a focus of folklorists of that time period who believed that, quote, cultural performance and beliefs must be expeditiously collected and documented because they would soon be gone forever, end quote. Okay, up next we have Eslanda Goody Robison. She was an African-American anthropologist, author, and civil rights activist. She was the wife and business manager of singer and actor Paul Robison. Eslanda Cordoza Goody was born in Washington, D.C. on December 15, 1895. Descended from enslaved Africans, her paternal great-grandfather was actually a Sephardic Jew whose family was expelled from Spain in the 17th century. Her maternal grandfather was Francis Louis Cordoza, the first black treasurer of South Carolina. Her father, John Good, was Goody or Good? Goody Proctor, but Good? Not sure if it's Goody or Good, but I'm going to refer to them as Goody. Her father, John Goody, was a law clerk in the War Department who later finished his law degree at Howard University. Islanda had two older brothers, John Jr. and Francis. She attended the University of Illinois and later graduated from Columbia University in New York with a B.S. degree in chemistry. She first became politically active during her years at Columbia when her own interest in racial equality was reinforced by young intellectuals in New York. When she then started work at the New York Presbyterian Hospital, she soon became the head histological chemist of surgical pathology, the first black person to ever hold such a position. And she was an actress, and she has been in the films such as Jericho in 1937, Big Fella in 1937, and Borderline in 1930. Up next is Madeline Anderson. Born Madison Wedby, Anderson grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where she developed a passion for film and teaching. She had four siblings, two sisters and two brothers, and as a child during the 1930s, Anderson lived in the Barney Google Row Homes, a group of dilapidated three-room houses located on an unpaved street in the 700 block of Southeast Avenue in Lancaster's southeastern 7th Ward neighborhood. Each Saturday, she would regularly attend the movie theaters with family and friends, and during those screenings, Anderson felt that the films that she saw did not reflect her reality. She wanted to see real African Americans that she could relate to. This was one of the reasons why she gravitated towards educational documentary filmmaking. This direction also enabled her to incorporate her passion for teaching. 
Her family and friends were surprised and hesitant to learn that she wanted to become a filmmaker because they often equated filmmaking with Hollywood. And it was common knowledge that black women could not aspire to be a Hollywood filmmaker. They encouraged her to become a teacher instead. She graduated from J.P. McCaskey High School in 1945 and enrolled in Millersville State Teachers College to pursue teaching as a career. Anderson was just the second black student ever admitted into Millersville and the only black student at college at the time. At college, she experienced racism and harassment, mostly from young white males. That's unfortunately not um, a surprise. To the disappointment of her parents, Madeline dropped out after her first year due to harassment and bullying. She promised her parents that she would return to school on one condition, that she didn't have to return to Millersville. For the next two years, Anderson worked at a factory to raise enough money to move to New York. She eventually received a partial scholarship at New York University, where she earned her bachelor's degree in psychology. Still passionate about motion pictures, she eventually decided to pursue her film career. While studying at NYU, Madeline Anderson sought to establish connections which would get her into the industry. Still searching for work, she decided to answer a job ad as a babysitter boarder for Richard Leacock, a well-known British documentary filmmaker and pioneer in direct cinema and cinema verite. She got the job, and while living with the family, she expressed her ambitions to become a filmmaker and was met with their support. She became a member of the Leacock's friends and colleagues. Her learning experiences in producing and directing films were obtained while working with Richard. Madeline Anderson's career in the film industry officially began in 1958 when Richard Leacock offered her a job as a production manager at his company, Andover Productions. As a production manager, her role was to supervise everything from production to editing. Anderson worked on two film series during her time at the company. The first was a series of science films for the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and the second was a series of documentary films for NBC called Bernstein in Europe, which chronicled the overseas travels of conductor slash composer Leonard Bernstein. After completing her first film, Interrogation Report 1, she felt she had much more to learn about independent filmmaking. She started attending courses at the Museum of Modern Art with the aims of learning all aspects of filmmaking and motion pictures. She took classes on editing, lighting, sound recording, and camera work. Sounds like my experience in film school. Anderson's film, Interrogation Report 1, was produced by the Andover Productions in 1959. Editing gave her a voice by enabling her to say what she wanted to say. In 1959, she left Andover Pictures to pursue her own career. During this period, she worked as a script clerk and assistant editor in 1962 on Shirley Clark's The Cool World. Afterwards, Anderson worked as a freelance editor while trying to get into the industry. Same girl. This provided to be difficult because to get into the industry, she had to be a part of the union. But to become part of the union, she had to have a job. Go the conundrums. I understand. This became even more problematic because most unions were primary father-son unions dominated by white males. Anderson decided to work non-union while simultaneously trying to get into one. This was a difficult decision because she was subjected to exploitation and racism. She eventually got into New York's editor's union, Local 771, after threatening to sue the union. You do, you girl. You gotta do what you gotta do. With union membership, she was able to get a job as an editor on WNTE, a PBS station, while working there, she worked as a staff editor for Black Journal and produced and directed a tribute to Malcolm X. She later left WNET after working as an editor there in order to produce, direct, and edit I Am Somebody in 1970. 
She created her own production company in 1975 called Onyx Productions. There, she made 16mm films for the New Jersey Board of Higher Education, as well as a film for the Ford Foundation called The Walls Came Tumbling Down, dealing with the public housing projects in St. Louis, Missouri. Having her own production company enabled her to be more independent and have more control over production as well as establish herself as a reputable filmmaker. Interrogation Report Number 1 is a survey film that chronicles the civil rights struggle of the late 1950s. The film featured many individuals who would later become influential figures in the civil rights movement, such as Martin Luther King Jr., Bayard Rustin, Andrew Young, and many others. Anderson saw the racial struggles occurring and felt obligated to make the film believing that documenting the events would inform and encourage others to act. She then approached Leacock with the idea for the film, and he encouraged her to make it. Under the supervision of Andover Productions, Anderson began filming in 1959. The first thing that was shot was a demonstration over school education in Ocean Hill, Brownsville, Brooklyn. She proceeded by moving further down south. After completing the film in 1960, Anderson had a difficult time getting a distributor to pick it up, so she began exhibiting it at churches and colleges. It wasn't too long before the film eventually was picked up by Columbia University's distribution outlet. Originally, the film was supposed to be a blueprint for the civil rights movement with two other installments planned, called Interrogation Report 2 and Interrogation Report 3. The two other parts would have continued to document the civil rights movement as it occurred. However, they never happened because she could not find anyone who was interested and who could provide further funding. In 2015, the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. recognized Interrogation Report 1 as the first documentary film to be directed by an African American woman. I left D.C. and I never had the opportunity to go to the African American History and Culture Museum and I'm kicking myself for it. <laughs> I hopefully will go someday. I Am Somebody is about the 400 black women workers at the Medical College Hospital of University of South Carolina who went on strike in Charleston. The film documents their struggle to achieve equal wages, justice, and dignity. It is made up of stock footage from film libraries, newsreel footage, and footage shot by Anderson and her crew on location during the event. This was convenient for her and her crew because by the time she had gotten the funding, most of the strike had already transpired. She really wanted to make the film when she first heard about the strike. However, when she initially approached television networks with the idea, they did not give her funding because they did not see the event as important or interesting. Mo Fawner, executive director of Local 1199, or 1199, I don't know how you say unions, the union that was on strike, found out about Anderson's desire to make the film and wanting to record the events himself, approached her to make it for the union. Anderson finally managed to acquire funding because when she approached the networks a second time, the strike had become an international event. Anderson primarily seeks to identify with her subjects in order to ethically and morally represent the struggle. Michael T. Martin identifies three crucial components to Anderson's documentary practice. One, film must have a social purpose. It must be accessible with the aims of evoking social change. Two, it must prioritize the voices of those who would otherwise be marginalized and silenced. And three, it must seek to resolve the myth that African Americans are unable to resolve their own affairs. When making a film, Anderson is not preoccupied with fame or money. Instead, she seeks to create something useful. She expressed this view when she said, quote, I think that media has to be utilitarian. I was criticized a lot for that view, and I accept the criticism. I was not interested in making entertainment. 
I wanted my films to be used to improve our people. Many people dismissed my films as message films, end quote. Therefore, for her, the documentary is a film that is occupied with telling the truth. Truth consists of capturing real events as they unfold. This means that reenactments of any kind don't make a film documentary because the footage is not even real, <laughs> if it, even if it is based on true events. She also saw little value in adding footage that might be entertaining because it was not her purpose. Anderson is critical of Hollywood cinema because for the longest time, films that were depicting the African-American experience were not made by African-Americans. As such, films would often interpret their experience by resorting to mythical and stereotypical depictions. This unintentionally robbed them of their ability to express their own experiences. However, this changed during the exploitation era of the 1970s. While Anderson was critical of the exploitative content, she nonetheless saw the opportunity for black filmmakers to establish themselves within Hollywood. She also believed that the period was a necessary step towards a more integrated industry. Now, African-American filmmakers have the opportunity to express themselves honestly without relying on exploitative content. To do so now, according to Anderson, would be a step backwards. As a filmmaker, Madeline was never particularly interested in pursuing a career in Hollywood because it did not fit with her humanitarian goals and aspirations. For her, Hollywood was the place where people would go to gain money and universal exposure. She even turned down a film from Universal because she simply was not interested in achieving either. Up next, we have Kathleen Collins. She was born March 18, 1942, in New Jersey, and she won first prize in an annual poetry reading contest at Rutgers Newark College of Arts and Sciences for her rendition of Walt Whitman's A Child Goes Forth and I Learned My Lesson Complete at the age of 15. She was an African-American poet, playwright, writer, filmmaker, director, civil rights activist, and educator from Jersey City, New Jersey. Her two featured narratives, The Cruise Brothers and Miss Malloy in 1980 and Losing Ground in 1982, furthered the range of black women's films. Although Losing Ground was denied large-scale exhibition, it was among the first films created by a black woman deliberately designed to tell a story intended for popular consumption, with a feature-length narrative structure. Collins thus paved the way for Julie Dash's Daughters of Dust in 1991 to become the first feature-length narrative film created by a black woman to be placed in commercial distribution. Influenced by Lorraine Hasbury, she wrote about African Americans as human subjects and not as mere race subjects. After graduating from high school in 1959, Collins went to Skidmore College where she received a BA in philosophy and religion in 1963. In 1962, after her campus was visited by two leaders of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, she became active in the civil rights movement, canvassing in Georgia for black residents to register to vote. As a result, she was arrested twice while working with the Albany movement. She graduated from Skidmore and taught high school French in Newton, Massachusetts, while attending graduate school at Harvard at night. In 1965, she won a scholarship to study in France at Paris Sorbonne University, where in 1966, she maintained an MA in French literature and cinema. Collins joined the faculty of City College at the City University of New York and became a professor of film history and screenwriting, where cinematographer Ronald K. Gray encouraged her to go ahead with a screenplay that she had adapted from a Henry Roth short story. That film became The Cruise Brothers and Miss Malloy, which eventually won first prize at the Sinking Creek Film Festival. She followed up this film with Losing Ground, which she wrote and directed. Losing Ground was the first feature-length drama directed by a Black American woman and won first prize at the Figueroa International Film Festival in Portugal. 
garnering much international acclaim. Both films were shot in Rockland County, New York, and are currently distributed by Milestone Films. Collins wrote many other plays and screenplays, but her two most well-known theatrical plays are The Midnight Hour in 1981 and The Brothers in 1982, both of which are available through Samuel French. Themes frequently explored in her work are issues of marital malice, male dominance and impotence, freedom of expression and intellect, pursuit, and her protagonists are cited as typically self-reflective women who move from a state of subjugation to empowerment. Collins unfortunately died from breast cancer in 1988 at the age of 46. Okay, up next is Usan Plassi. Born January 13, 1958, she's a film director, writer, and producer from Martinique, French West Indies. She's notable for being the first black woman director of a film produced by a major Hollywood studio, MGM, for A Dry White Season in 1989, as well as being the only woman filmmaker to have directed Marlon Brando whom she brought back to the screen after a gap of nine years. Plassey is the first black director, male or female, to direct an actor to an Oscar nomination, and the first black director to win the Caesar Award, the highest French film award. She also is the first black director to win a Venice Film Festival Award, The Silver Lion. Plassey grew up studying the films of Fritz Lang, Alfred Hitchcock, Billy Wilder, and Orson Welles, and she left for Paris in 1975 to earn her master's degree in French literature, in theater at the Sorbonne and DEA in art and archaeology and a film degree specializing in cinematography from renowned Louis Lumiere College. It was in Paris with the encouragement of the French godfather, Francois Tufreau, that she was able to put together her first feature, Sugarcane Alley, in 1983. Shot for less than $1 million, it documents through the eyes of a young boy the love and sacrifice of a poor black family living in Martinique sugarcane plantation in the 1930s. Sugarcane Alley won more than 17 international awards, including the Venice Film Festival Silver Lion, as well as the Copa Volpi, the Volpi Cup, for Best Lead Actress Award. It also won the prestigious Caesar Award, which is the French equivalent to an Academy Award, for Best Feature Film. Among its first, it won the Special Jury Award at the World Fest Houston International Film Festival and the first public award at the Fespaso, Africa's biggest film festival. After seeing Plassey's work, Robert Redford handpicked her to attend the 1984 Sundance Director's Lab, becoming her American godfather. <laughs> Those are in quotation marks. Marlon Brando was so moved by her next project, A Dry White Season in 1989, and her commitment to social change that he came out of a self-imposed retirement, agreeing to act in a film for free. Also starring in the film were actors Donald Sutherland and Susan Sarandon. Placey adopted A Dry White Season from the novel by South African writer Andre Brink. The story focuses on social movements of South Africa and the Soweto riots that were heralded for putting the politics of the apartheid into a meaningful human terms. Placey was so passionate about creating an accurate story depicting the reality of apartheid that she risked her life traveling undercover to South Africa. To research the riots, she was introduced to the people of Soweto Township by Dr. Motlana, Nelson Mandela's, and Desmond Tutu's personal physician while she eluded the South African Secret Services posing as a recording artist. Placey became the first black female director produced by a major Hollywood studio and is the only black filmmaker who succeeded in making, in the U.S., a narrative feature against apartheid on the silver screen during the 27 years of Nelson Mandela's incarceration. 
The film enraged the South African oppression regime and was banned in South Africa for a time. The late Senator Ted Kennedy supported the filmmaker. Brando's performance in the movie earned his eighth and last Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor, and he received the Best Actor Award at the Tokyo Film Festival. For her outstanding cinematic achievement, Plassey received the Orson Welles Award in Los Angeles. For the first anniversary of his election, Mandela welcomed Usan Plassey in South Africa and granted her an exclusive interview that has yet to be discovered. By 1992, Plassey veered from the serious subject matter of her previous films to show the spirit and liveliness of her native Martinique with Simeon, a musical comedic fairy tale set in the Caribbean and Paris. In the three-part documentary, Ami Cesare, so sorry, I'm, I can't pronounce, I'm so white, a voice for history in 1994, about the famed Martinique poet, playwright, and philosopher. Both garnered numerous awards and international critical acclaim. Other works include Disney slash ABC Studios, Plassey directed and produced Ruby Bridges in 1998, the story of Ruby Bridges, the little New Orleans girl who was the first to integrate the public schools, immortalized in the painting by Norman Rockwell. President Bill Clinton and Disney President Michael Eisner introduced the film from the White House to the American audiences. Plassey's film won four awards, including the Christopher Awards, the Humanitas Prize, the National Educational Media Network Gold Apple, and Best Performance Young Actress Award, Young Artist Awards. For Paramount slash Showtime Studios, Plassey directed The Killing Yard in 2001. The drama is based on the true events surrounding the 1971 Attica prison riot, which had the indelible impact on the American prison system and jury process. The film won the Silver Gavel Award at the American Bar Association. I didn't know that there was an American Bar Association Film Awards. In 2006, she wrote and directed the documentary Parcours des Dissidents. Oh, once again, I'm so sorry. The Journey of the Dissidents, narrated by Oscar-nominated and French actor Gérard Depardieu. I can say his name because thank you, 102 Dalmatians. <laughs> about the unknown odyssey of the men and women from the islands of Martinique and Guadalupe, many of who were trained at Fort Dix, New Jersey during World War II and fought throughout the liberation of France. Most recently, Plassey wrote and directed the French three-hour period piece set in 17th century, La Marie de la, de la Isle. <laughs> I want you all to struggle with me. Les... Maries de la Isles Bourbon, The Brides of Bourbon Island, in 2007. It tells a romantic historical epic action adventure where three women survived a harrowing ocean voyage from France to forcibly marry French expatriates on the island of Réunion. For Fox Studios, Plassey developed an animated feature currently entitled Cado Umbaza. She is actively developing a feature film on Bessie Coleman, for which she recorded the very last witness of the first African-American woman aviator journey in France in an action comedy set in Los Angeles and Paris. Plassey has chosen Teaching Toots, a comedy drama on illiteracy, a project close to her heart, to be her next film to co-produce and direct. She's been a member since 2013 of the National Committee for the Memory and History of Slavery member. Up next, we have Julie Dash. Julie was born on October 22, 1952, in Queens, New York, and is an American film director, writer, and producer. Dash received her MFA in 1985 at the UCLA Film School and is one of the graduates and filmmakers known as the L.A. Rebellion. 
After she'd written and directed several shorts, her 1991 feature, Daughters of the Dust, became the first full-length film directed by an African-American woman to obtain general theatrical release in the United States. Yeah, we had already talked about her just, just previously. As an undergraduate, she studied psychology until she was accepted to the film school at the Leonard Davis Center for the Performing Arts at City Colleges of New York, or CCNY. In 1974, she earned her Bachelor of Arts degrees in film production. As a student, Dash wrote the script for a documentary for the New York Urban Coalition entitled Working Models of Success. After graduating from CCNY, she moved to Los Angeles for graduate studies. She completed a two-year conservatory fellowship in producing slash writing at the AFI Conservatory. There, she studied under filmmakers including John Kadar, William Friedkin, and Slavko Vorkopic. She attended graduate school at the UCLA Film School and became one of the new generation of African and African-American filmmakers known as the Black Insurgents, or the L.A. Rebellion. She directed Working Models of Success in 1976, and the next year produced Four Women in 1975, a short dance film based on the song by Nina Simone. They won a gold medal for women in film in the 1978 Miami International Film Festival. As a graduate student of UCLA, she received an MFA in film and television production. She directed the film Diary of an African Nun in 1977. Screened at the Los Angeles Film Exposition, it earned a Directors Guild Award for student film. During film school, Dash was influenced by avant-garde Latin American, African, and Russian cinema. It doesn't surprise me based on what she, who she studied under in the conservatory either. Dash's film work began to take on a new direction after film school. Dash said that in 1991 interview with The Village Voice, quote, I stopped making documentaries after discovering Toni Morrison, Tony Conde Bambera, and Alice Walker. I wondered, why can't I see movies like this? I realized I needed to learn how to make narrative movies, end quote. Being inspired by the novels of these black women authors led to her decision to direct dramatic films. In her 1975 short film, Four Women, which was, as we said, based on the ballad Four, Four Women by Nina Simone, in the song, four women are portrayed Aunt Sarah, a slave, Safarina, a mixed-race woman, Sweet Thing, a prostitute, and Peaches as a representation of black women overcoming racial and gender-specific forms of oppression. Stereotypes of black women were directly addressed, asking the audience to address their own biases and stereotypes. From 1978 to 1980, Dash worked as a member of the Classifications and Ratings Administration for the Motion Picture Association of America. She had a special assignment screening Cannes International Film Festival to review a screening of short films in the Marchou de Cinema. Daughters of Dust is a fictionalized telling of her father's Gullah family, who lived in the coast of southeastern United States. The film features black women's stories, striking visuals shot on location, and non-linear narrative. It's included in the National Film Registry of the Library of Congress for its cultural, historical, and aesthetic significance. Dash has written two books on Daughters of the Dust, a making of, history, co-written by Tony Cade Bambara and Bell Hooks, and a sequel set 20 years after the film's story. Daughters of the Dust was named one of the most significant films of the last 30 years by IndieWire. Dash has worked on television since the late 1990s. Her television movies include Funny Valentine's 1999, Incognito, Love Song 2000, The Rosa Parks Story in 2002, starring Angela Bassett, 
The National Underground Railroad Freedom Center commissioned Dash to direct Brothers of the Borderland in 2004 as an immersive film exhibit narrated by Oprah Winfrey, following the path of women gaining freedom in the Underground Railroad. In 2017, Dash directed episodes of Queen Sugar on the Oprah Winfrey Network. At the end of 2019 Sundance Film Festival, it was announced Dash's next project would be a biopic of civil rights icon Angela Davis to be produced by Lionsgate. Up next is Cheryl Dunier. Born May 13, 1966, she is a Liberian-American film director, producer, screenwriter, editor, and actress. Dunier's work often concerns themes of race, sexuality, and gender, particularly issues relating to black lesbians. Dunier was born in Liberia and grew up in Pennsylvania. She received her BA from Temple University and her MFA from Rutgers Mason Gross School of Art. She has taught at the University of California, Los Angeles, UC Riverside, Pritzker College, Claremont Graduate University, Panoma College, California Institute of the Arts, the New School for Research, the School of Art Institute of Chicago, I applied there, and the San Francisco State University. Denier began her career with six short films, which have been collected on DVD as the early works of Cheryl Denier. Most of these videos featured the use of mixed media, blurring of the fact and fiction, and explored issues relating to the director's experience as a black lesbian filmmaker. These films are early examples of dunyamentaries, a blend of narrative and documentary techniques that Denier describes as a mix of film, video, friends, and a lot of heart, end quote. These works, spanning from 1990 to 1994, explore themes of race, sexuality, family, relationships, whiteness, and the intricacies of white and black lesbian dating culture. Created before Denier's widespread success, The Watermelon Woman, Denier's early works, were produced with low budget and often starred Denier herself as a lead actress. Other works include Janine in 1990, She Don't Fade 1991, Vanilla Sex 1992, an Untitled Portrait, 1993, The Potluck and the Passion, 1993, Greetings from Africa, 1994, The Watermelon Woman, 1996, Stranger Inside, 2001, and Black is Blue, 2014. Denier is set to write and direct the film adaptation of the novel The Wonder of All Things by Jason Mott for Lionsgate. Denier cites numerous influences that have contributed to her work, including of Chantal Ackerman, Woody Allen, Spike Lee, Godard, but notes that Jim McBride's David Holzman's Diary in 1967 and Charles Burnett's Killer of Sheep in 1977 are some of the most powerful influences on her. So that's our list of diving just a little bit deeper into Black filmmakers. Like I said, I wanted to do a little bit of a better job and making sure I got those out there. It's still really hard for me to find uh, Latinx filmmakers. Um... But hey, like I said, tele- I've always been saying, television's a little bit nicer to people of color. So you never know. We could possibly... Film and television are kind of like sisters. Not twins, but sisters, as they say. Your eyebrows should be or something like that. Or no, it's the opposite. They're twins, not sisters. Whatever. So while there isn't always enough to find out about these women especially early women, I'm committed to doing even more research to make sure that I can include not just black women, but all women of color. It is really hard to do extensive research about these women, even with the wonders of the internet. Uh, but now that I have a little bit more free time, uh, haha, we'll see about that. I'll make sure to devote more research. So tune in next week where we're going to be talking about producers 
And um, as they still are in California, we are trying to stay safe. So wash your hands, wear your mask. Be safe, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye. This has been The Celluloid Ceiling, a podcast researched, created, and edited by me. Special thanks to my dad, Mark Castaneda, for doing the music. 